everyone to our first Greenhouse Environmental Humanities book talk of the 21-22 school year. And we're so excited that we could kick off uh, this semester's talks with Emily O'Gorman, who's senior lecturer at Macquarie University in Australia, which is why we're having this in morning time uh, here in Norway and in the evening um, there in the uh, roundabout Sydney area. And Emily is going to be uh, discussing her book, Wetlands in a Dry Land, More Than Human Histories of Australia's Murray-Darling Dar Basin, which came out with University of Washington Press this year, 2021. So we'll give it over to Emily to introduce us to the book, and then we'll do our uh, question and answer period. Emily. Thank you so much. Um, and just to start, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm talking to you today from the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. Uh, and I want to pay my respects to elders past and present. And this part of Darug and Gunungurra country is in the Blue Mountains, um, just outside of Sydney, as Dolly mentioned. Uh, and it's part of a mountain range in Eastern Australia from which water runs inland into the rivers of the Murray-Darling Basin which of course is the river basin that's the focus of my book that I'll be talking to you about tonight, my time, probably morning your time somewhere, some other time, space. So I'd like to acknowledge that the basin is comprised of the country of more than 40 different Aboriginal groups. And I pay my respects to elders past and present them as well. So thank you, Dolly and Finane, um, for running this amazing series. I'm quite honoured to be the first speaker for, for this um, particular season of the series. Uh, and thank you so much for hosting me. So thank you also to everyone for coming along. It's really great to see you all and great to see some really familiar faces um, who I know from different parts of this work and different stages of this work, um, different aspects of this work as well. So it's great to see you all coming together. And I look forward to a discussion afterwards. Um, and thank you all for your interest in this book. So this book at its core is a history of wetlands within this particular river system in Australia, the Murray-Darling Basin. It aims to show what this region can contribute to international discussions about both history, including ways of doing history, and also water and wetlands in a time of environmental crisis, or perhaps crises, there are multiple and mounting all the time around us. So I've worked with and within this river system for a long time now, all up more than 15 years. It's a remarkable place with a rich diversity of landscapes and people. It's also a region that is rich in environmental contestations, many of which happen between multiple scales from international to quite local. The Murray-Darling Basin is a massive river system. It covers a seventh of Australia, crosses four states in the Australian Capital Territory. It is often referred to as the nation's food bowl, and it has been a site of, site of significant irrigation schemes and dam construction, particularly in the 20th century. Today, the basin poses environmental management challenges at a range of scales. Most prominently, these challenges centre on competing views over agricultural water diversion from rivers and wetlands for farming, the channelisation of rivers and the construction of irrigation infrastructures, as well as Aboriginal people's access to water for a range of reasons, including spiritual, cultural and economic values and activities um, and a range of other reasons as well. 
These contemporary debates in physical landscapes have been shaped by past approaches to wetlands in this region, including local uses such as hunting, fishing and farming that have both created bonds with particular wetlands and altered them. The basin and its history also raise internationally pressing considerations of water scarcity that are especially crucial in the context of climate change. The book focuses on the 20th century as a period of significant losses of wetlands, both in the basin and around the world, due to drainage for agriculture and other forms of development, disease control and water diversion for irrigation. Ecologists currently estimate that up to 87% of the world's wetlands have disappeared since 1700, with most being lost since 1900. This has become an issue for many reasons, not least result in losses in biodiversity and livelihoods, the release of carbon into the atmosphere and ruptures in cultural associations with specific wetlands. Within these changing landscapes, new kinds of wetland environments have also emerged with complex histories of their own, like sewage treatment works and rice paddies. The book focuses on particular wetland sites, including those that are recognized as internationally important under the Ramsar Convention, agricultural landscapes, one that includes sewage treatment works and wetlands that have been drained. And I particularly engage with wetlands that are located within the country of Naranjeri, Gearbal, Wewin, and Wiradjuri Aboriginal people. Through these studies, I'm interested in asking what is counted as a wetland for whom and with what consequences? And how have the different interests of those who had a stake in these wetlands come together and shaped each other? And here I've been interested in areas of both conflict and cooperation. A key way I have approached the question of what is a wetland and how have wetlands been un understood and valued is by appreciating that these are always multi-species questions. Wetlands have always been shaped with and against other species, from weaving sedges to eradicating mosquitoes to saving waterbirds. Wetland environments in the Murray-Darling Basin and in Australia more generally need to be understood in the context of Aboriginal people's millennia-long history of living with these places, in and with these places. Aboriginal people have co-created diverse landscapes across the continent over tens of thousands of years, including many wetlands, for example, through burning and other agricultural, aquacultural and spiritual practices. Paying attention to this co-creation disabuses us of notions that these wetlands are simply natural and thus by definition threatened by human activity. Instead, we need to acknowledge the vast array of potential interactions people can have with wetlands. British colonisation beginning in the late 18th century in Australia radically altered Aboriginal people's relationships with wetlands in this region. Perhaps most significantly, the approaches and forms to water management brought by British colonists later informed the construction of large dams and extensive irrigation networks by state, interstate and federal government bureaucracies, particularly across the 20th century. Most histories related to water in the basin have focused on the lives of water engineers, the construction of water storage and diversion projects, and the role of water bureaucracies in manipulating water flow. These histories have been important in revealing some of the rationales behind the consequences of these schemes. Yet there were many other actors, including a diverse array of humans and other species that shaped these histories. This book expands traditional narratives, I hope, by highlighting the diversity of human and non-human agencies that have co-created wetlands. Examining non-human agencies further underscores the need for new narratives of colonization in this region. 
showing how relationships among Aboriginal people, European settlers and many others were dynamically embedded within and shaped by water, wider, more than human relationships. In engaging with these approaches and arguments, this book aims to further develop emerging approaches to more than human histories. And I wanna just talk a little bit about this approach. In 2010, I went into the archives looking for government documents on water use in commercial rice growing in New South Wales and Victoria, two states within Australia. But I came out thinking about wetlands. In the context of an ongoing drought, I wanted to know more about the changing water politics of irrigation and rice. How had this water intensive crop come to be grown and then to dominate agriculture in some areas, which had experienced long droughts before? As expected, I found large files on water and rice growing created by state governments. What I had not expected was the almost equally large files on ducks in rice growing areas. I knew that the annual duck migrations that traverse the rice growing areas of California had proved challenging for managers there, but the Australian ducks were not migratory. They were instead nomadic, following less predictable movements of water. In the Murrumbidgee irrigation area, these ducks presented some unique challenges for managers, farmers, and scientists. For many farmers, a range of different species of ducks had become pests soon after they started growing rice there in the 1920s. These birds damaged rice crops when they settled in paddies and ate freshly sown rice. But for the ducks, the flooded rice paddies were additional watery, grassy places to swim and forage sometimes replacing other wetland habitat as farmers diverted water for this farming. In this way, the flooded rice paddies became a kind of wetland with not only ducks and rice, but a range of other plants, frogs, birds, and insects moving into them. Some farmers welcomed some of these new arrivals, others not, much depended on the farmer. As I entered further into the duck stories, they offered a different view of the history of rice growing water and wetlands one that gave insight into their needs and values, as well as their influence on a range of human concerns. Further, their movement and attraction to water seemed to contest the human boundaries between agricultural lands and natural areas. Ultimately, the ducks started to change my sense of who the important actors were in this history and just how much control humans had over the histories they tried to make. More than human approaches help us to understand these sort of socio-ecological relationships. These approaches have developed over the last two decades through a transdisciplinary dialogue amongst science and technology studies, anthropology, geography, philosophy, and other fields. This dialogue has shaped an interdisciplinary set of concerns that have come to sit within the environmental humanities. In general terms, this scholarship rejects notions of human exceptionalism that in Western traditions has helped to separate nature from culture and justify human exploitation of an externalized nature. Instead, it argues for richer examinations of socio-ecological relationships that more fully account for a diversity of actors, both human and non-human. Crucially, these approaches emphasize the importance of situating, shifting modes of understanding that are being used to make sense of and inhabit these landscapes, or these relationships and landscapes. These modes of understanding, including those in the sciences, have formed been formed within specific histories, cultures, and more than human relationships, and have had particular consequences. In many ways, environmental historians have shared these concerns. Environmental history is an established field, um, which many of you would know who work in that area in the 19, it emerged in the 1970s, 
and has since sought to interrogate changing human relationships with the environment. Indeed, historians have also sought to show the dynamic roles of other organisms, from Alfred Crosby's ecological imperialism to Harriet Ritvo's work on animals in Victorian England and the contributions to a recent edited collection, which is absolutely fabulous, titled The Historical Animal, who argue for the importance of taking animal perspectives and behaviours seriously, including in the making of films. However, these works have not always explicitly aimed to contribute to multi-species and more than human scholarship. While environmental historians are increasingly identifying with the environmental humanities, this field has largely treated this as an umbrella rather than an interdisciplinary space that it too can transform and also be transformed by. There is, however, a growing body of historical scholarship that is explicitly engaging with multi-species and more than human approaches to examine the agency of other biota, biota in shaping human histories, human in brackets there while also being attentive to shifting and diverse ways of understanding um, and knowing human and beyond. These more than human histories show that both environmental history and more than human approaches are needed to more fully account for the diversity of humans and non-humans that have shaped socio-ecological relationships and how these relationships have shifted over time. More than human histories are always situated and partial and necessarily run counter to overarching grand nar narratives. In engaging with particular sets of more than human relationships and situated knowledges, these kind of approaches emphasize diversity and multiplicity, multiplicity in many forms. In this way, they work to avoid homogenizing and universalizing the human, to pay close attention to differences in human experience, even as they aim to rethink and reposition human lives within the context of multi-species entanglements. Questions of race and gender are deeply entangled in multi-species worlds. This book has aimed or, is, or does aim to be attentive to these relationships and to draw attention to both human and non-human diversity. Attending to multiple ways of interacting with and understanding wetlands opens up not only new histories, but also futures for these places histories and futures that might, be, might better account for and even promote this diversity. Each chapter of Wetlands in a Dry Land centres on a key theme that illuminates an important aspect of the history of wetlands in the Murray-Darling Basin and also beyond. These themes are weaving, leaking, crossing, enclosing, migrating and rippling. These are themes that highlight relationships or socio-ecological entanglements of humans and non-humans many of which take place across and complicate Western modernist human borders. These accounts draw on original archival research as well as interviews and time spent in these places, wetland places. In each case, I've sought to read and listen for multiple agencies. While many of the chapters focus on specific animals and plants from sedges to mosquitoes, seals, ducks and pelicans, these discussions are situated within a bigger cast of organisms and forces to try to show the multiple more than human relationships that are at stake. The chapter's thematic focus aims to bring together past and more recent events, policies and interactions. The book begins with contemporary concerns in order to foreground the pressing issues that Aboriginal people, and in this case, um, particularly women, um, experience as they seek to create healthier country amid multiple pressures and historical legacies. By focusing on weaving, this first chapter shows that the concerns of Welwyn and other Aboriginal groups 
concerns that may seem disparate to others are in fact intimately connected. It aims to provide a complex, richly woven understanding of what is at stake in the lack of water in wetlands. Weaving interconnects generations and wetland sites, water policies and access to these cultural landscapes. The remaining chapters are roughly chronological, focusing on successive events and particular sites that are important in understanding the history of wetlands in this region and elsewhere. And while these are roughly chronological, they uh, are in dialogue with contemporary concerns the whole way through and also trying to uh, also um, incorporate longer histories. Through these chapters, Wetlands in a Dry Land seeks to show that far from being static or pristine nature, wetlands are places of multifaceted human and non-human encounter. Wetlands are sites in which issues of race, class and gender have taken and continue to take shape within dynamic sets of human and non-human relationships. Managing wetlands as cultural spaces with lively human and more than human histories and futures would look very different to most current models. Indeed, doing so could lead to more socially just and sustainable models. Further through history and hopefully this history, we can appreciate that wetland animals and plants have responded differently to varied pressures. Their dynamic lives and behaviours means that they often move across and between wetland, agricultural, urban and wider landscapes in ways that need to be better accounted for by managers, farmers and others. We need to keep revising the meanings and values we associate with watery places and the category of wetlands as these continue to inform their management. Australian perspectives on uncertain water and climate regimes are also important contributions to global discussions as we enter an era shaped by changing climate regimes and by the responses of dynamic human and non-human agents to these changes. We need imaginative responses now more than ever. Ultimately, this book tries to widen the scope for reimagining wetlands and indeed dominant modes of water management as these places continue to be lost by undertaking a multi-scale and more than human history showing the way they have been shaped with and against other species. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. This was excellent. Uh, sounds like a really exciting book, I would say. So just a reminder for people, uh, so wrote in the chat, uh, let us know if you have questions. Uh, Mr. All said either just write in that you have a question or if you're unable to speak, just write the question and I will ask it for you. Uh, but I thought I would start off. Uh, so I, I think you do a very good job at you know, presenting the potential in uh, modern human histories, uh, uh, an approach that a lot of us are very sympathetic to also, and also try doing ourselves in our, our scholarship. So, um, so this is really exciting. I wonder if you could say something more about, in a way, the challenges of doing historical research on this, in particular with, I mean, archives, uh, our, you know, empirical material, because archives are, of course, not neutral places. Where do you go to find these different voices of, I mean, well, the non-British, of the uh, animals, plants, the modern human, you know, what, what are these archives? What are the possibilities and limitations of going in a way to the natural sciences for these voices also if that's how how uh, we do this could just start off with that i'm just taking some notes so i remember um the different aspects of the question um so it's a really good question uh i think 
Uh, and there's a few different, um, I guess, approaches or methodologies I tried to employ while I was doing this research. So one, one of them is by taking the approach that archives are never purely human, they're never purely, they are, they are shaped by power relationships, definitely. Um, including, you know, who's taking care of these documents that then survive <laughs> um, over these years. Uh, but also I take the approach that these are documents shaped in relation with um, hum diverse human and non-human lives. So, for example, um, I mean, I gave the example of the, the huge files created on ducks um, by, the, by the state government um, water authorities, basically because they were these um, pests. And so there's actually these huge archives on ducks. Um, and I think, I mean, I actually started writing this book, maybe this is divulging too much, but I started writing it in the spirit of Foucault's gene genealogies, which is, um, I mean, one aspect of his approach there is about fragments in the archives um, and what this gives away about larger power structures as well. So I think um, putting those issues of power in the centre and in the words of the wonderful Dora How Donna Haraway, staying with the trouble of, the, of archives for historians is really important. Um, and also reading for multiple voices. So while ducks may have been pests to um, rice farmers and government agricultural agencies and water agencies in the 1920s, um, and actually are still so to some today, um, there is a, you can get a sense of some of the contestations around um, the ducks and the ducks themselves who are um, going about living their lives. Another example I guess I would give is of, um, and this is about a listening and reading for diverse human voices, is um, one of the sets of archives I looked at was um, compiled within the White Australia policy around a Japanese migrant um, who had to justify his um, staying in Australia by continuing agricultural experiments on rice. Uh, and there's a 300-page document on his life, <laughs> um, which includes uh, letters from himself and his wife from community members saying that they want him to stay and his family is really important in the community and so on. So I think um, it is a challenge for historians, but I think knowing those power relationships and um, addressing them directly, um, reading for these different voices and also reading against some of the, um, against some of the power relation dynamics that are shaping these archives as well. So I guess having a critical engagement with them as um, problematic as they are. I guess the other, the other thing that I did um, was to look to um, not only methods of environmental history where we go places, um, and also, but also look to methods of environmental history that have employed oral histories. Um, so going into communities and talking to people, that was really important for a range of reasons. Um, uh, one is to um, hear stories that aren't in the archives, um, and they can be stories spanning generations um, and, and yeah, not just decades, but generations. Um, and the other thing is to be, uh, to recognise that these histories, people have a stake in these histories. So it's also talking to them about the project that you're doing. Um, and so 
uh, quite a, all of my chapters that include interviews and oral histories, the people I interviewed and undertook the oral histories, we read those chapters um, and, and we discussed them and so on. So I think it's recognising that people have a stake in these histories too. And for this particular project, it was really important to um, have a dialogue with, with the communities I was writing about. Yeah. Thank you. I agree. That's that's very important, and uh, it's also interesting to hear a bit about you know the process, how the your approach to the book and the thinking evolves or has evolved as you work in it, because that's I think one of the the good things with these book talks to to hear about the process as well. Yeah. Uh, it, it actually it changed a lot across the course. Yeah, it is interesting. I've enjoyed the book talks for that reason too. Yeah. yeah. All right, so we have a couple of uh, people lined up here. We can start with Ellen. We unmute you there. Hi. Well, my first more pressing question now is whether that man was allowed to stay. Yes, he he was. He did these amazing rice experiments that led to part, partly led to rice rice growing um, in the Murrumbidgee irrigation area in New South Wales. Um, Isabaro Takasuko, Takasuko, sorry. Um, yeah, he. He did stay. Uh, he eventually, um, I think, did go back to Japan, but that was of his own accord later in life. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. That's nice that we know that too. I know in the medieval evidence and the pre-modern evidence, we so often get these really fascinating things and then we don't know the end. <laughs> so, um, so I guess as, as someone who's been spending a lot of time reading about rivers, um, I guess I'm curious, is there something unique either topographically or human development wise about the Murray Darling? I don't, I don't know a lot about your, your rivers that made it possible to talk about wetlands for so long into the 20th century, because with so many of the European and, and North American rivers, that goes away halfway through the 20th century because of the, just like the incredible canalization and regulation of the rivers. What, what, what is it that lets you continue a vibrant wetland story so long into modernity? Mm. Um, that's a really good question, Ellen, as well. And I, I probably, I've weighed up talking more about the basin itself. It's, it is fascinating and it's got these um, big floods and long droughts. Uh, quite like a really interesting river system in a range of ways. Um, yeah, so, I mean, part of my initial approach, which was doing this genealogy approach, was doing a gene genealogy of wetlands. And what that led me into thinking about was the category of wetlands itself, which doesn't, um, like the, the term wetlands uh, doesn't really come into common usage uh, internationally um, until, uh, the 50s and 60s, it only starts to enter US um, regulatory structures, I think like in the 1920s or something, but it's, it's in the 20th century. Uh, and it's a term of conservation, it's laden with values. So it's about conserving these places, reframing them from miasmic, swampy, um, whatever's <laughs> messes into places worth saving. Um, so it is this sort of rebranding of wetlands that's undertaken by scientists um, and others involved in sort of international environmental conservation efforts. Um, so one of the 
chapters is about tracing um, that term and that category uh, in the in the 60s and 70s. Um, I'm trying to think what I was writing about when it came to the 50s, because it is this moment, this post-war development moment, where there's such a focus on um, dam building and channelization and all the things you're talking about, um, urban development, so on. Um, and that's where I began to shift into looking, I think, more at how these were like, you know, the sewage, the sewage treatment plants and like the, the alternative wetlands that started to emerge at that time or what we might think, you know, now sewage treatment plants are subject to Ramsar, Ramsar um, conservation or listed with Ramsar, sorry, um, as the, the International Wetlands Conservation um, Treat Convention. Um, yeah, but it does, this post-war period is a period of drainage and so on. Um, but I, I was looking at the way that the wetland spaces that became created there um, were being inhabited by mosquitoes and ducks and so on in these different ways. They were going to the water that was there, that was being diverted from the wetlands they had been going to um, in some instances, for example. Yeah, but it's a really interesting period, that post-war period. Um, where a lot of understandings of environments really change, you know, and, and the post-war period is, you know, of course, following the um, the radiation through um, some of the nuclear testing that was done in the US and the Pacific, which gives us the ecosystem concept and all that. Sort of stuff. It was a bit later, but all of these, um, yeah, changes start to happen in that period. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the um, a lot of the concern at the beginning of the 20th century over wetlands, it's actually tied up with birds, which is what's interesting then for your case of ducks where they're seen as negative. But, but in the early interest in wetlands, it was about migratory birds being seen mm -hmm. as positive. So migratory birds needed places in you know, in the North American context to stop at. And wetlands mm -hmm. were the places that they would stop along their migratory routes. So this is why they become an interest of, in particular, um, not just conservationists of birds, but also hunters, right? So mm. people who wanted to be able to kill the birds wanted the birds to be able to survive. And that meant that they needed wetlands. Um, mm. So I know this becomes one of the, the kind of discussions there. But um, Christine had a question. So Christine, we'll go over to you. Thank you very much. And thank you, Emily, for sharing your new work. It's really great to hear the next iteration um, of your original book that you wrote when we were postdocs together a long time ago. Um, when um, I heard you speak now, a thing that kind of came up for me was two things, and it's twofold. It's about the climate crisis and it's about time. And here I'm particularly interested in deep time. So both kind of from the, the past and the environmental history and how we can learn from that. But a lot of my thinking at the moment is also about future thinking. So knowing because of the climate crisis that the world as we know it is possibly irrevocably changed and will continue to be so. What sort of lessons 
um, might you be able to draw out of your data and the interviews you did? And I'm particularly interested both in the Aboriginal peoples that you spoke with, but also the ducks. Are they showing signs of changing kind of ahead of time because of the climate crisis? That's a really good question. And in some ways it goes to um, something Finane raised as well, which is about the role of sciences in this um, as well. I'm thinking with non-humans that have um, often been represented by the sciences, I suppose, uh, in dominant modes of management and research, I suppose. Um, they're really good questions. So I think uh, wetlands are really interesting in the climate crisis situation um, because of their release of um, carbon dioxide and they're actually being looked to as carbon sinks and people um, are trying to construct wetlands and conserve the ones that are left as well um, for to directly address some of the challenges of climate change. Um, time's really interesting in this situation uh, because I think for the reasons that you say, because of the deep time, but also the future. And in Australia, that's quite interesting in the context of, and this river basin, in the context of droughts and floods, which have a long history in this region. And um, many animals are adapted to that. So as I mentioned, the ducks are nomadic. Um, they go to where the water is because it's very irregular <laughs> um, in terms of the rainfall patterns and so on. So they're not migratory in the way um, North, ducks in North America are, um, which make them quite interesting. Um, so I think during the last drought, for example, we could see changes where the um, where wetland systems were becoming more terrestrial. So they were changing from these places um, that had been shaped by these um, floods and droughts into becoming more terrestrial because of the length and severity of the drought. Um, and to bring the scientists into this, there's some really interesting work being undertaken by wetland scientists, such as um, one of my colleagues, Tim Ralph at Macquarie University, and I know that there's others as well, on the effects of wetlands in places like Australia, which have these floods and droughts and what might be happening now, how we can understand the behaviours of um, animals, which are often in response to water, but also plants. So the vegetation starts changing to more terrestrial systems and that um, affects a whole lot of things. Um, yeah, so I think we can, and the, the drought that we recently experienced here in Australia, it was very long and it was clearly linked to climate change. And I think we could definitely see the animals start to respond to that and um, not just the ducks, but um, a range of other animals and plants as well. So we've got river red gum forests, which are very flood, um, they like the, the influx of flood water, but then for the flood water go go away, but then they needed to come back again, they started to really suffer. Um, and luckily we did get floods in the end, but I think we could started, start to see some of those shifts um, happening um, that are now shifting in other ways now that we've got those floods back. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and thinking about those multiple temporalities together, I think is really important as well. So you've got the evolutionary timeframes, you've got the climatic timeframes, and then you've got the climate change timeframes, which are anyone's guess right now. 
That's judging by the IPCC report that got released recently. <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts on this? Because I know this is an area you work on too. Oh, gosh, um, you've taken, taken me back there. Uh, what do I think about this? I'm, I'm going through a really hard time at the moment, coming, um, not coming to terms with it. I've come to terms with the fact that we've kind of wrecked the planet. Um, but I am particularly interested at, in, at the moment in how we can learn from Indigenous peoples who have... A, a record of um, how to to really change to big environmental changes over time. So they they go back so long that we've had these kind of massive changes. Um, that whether that's been a volcanic eruption or um, almost going back to kind of to ice age times, sometimes it's like it's those kind of perceptions of knowing that something really bad is happening and, and how you deal with that. And I think we as Western society are um, very guilty of putting our heads in the sand when it comes to that, because it's so confrontational to, to come to terms with and finding a different way of talking about it, but also about acting about it towards a better future like acting now like the IPCC really hammers home we need to act now right um, and so that's where I'm particularly interested in is trying to find common ground to act on um, rather than kind of get lost in the despondency of it all. Mm. I think the other time I would put in there too is bureaucratic time. <laughs> and I know there's people here from um, management, um, water management in Australia, um, who might be able to speak to this too. And so the question is also is how can we uh, um, support Aboriginal people's knowledges and um, so on through the bureaucracies that are now responsible for massive shifts in water around river systems like the Murray-Darling Basin. So there's these examples um, of uh, Aboriginal, that I, I know of, of Aboriginal people um, initiating cultural burn in a wetland with the understanding that water would arrive at a particular time um, before the burn, uh, and it didn't arrive, and a whole lot of reed beds were um, badly burnt, which is not the goal. Um, so the idea is to do a cool burn. Um, yeah, so I think there's some issues there too around bureaucratic time, uh, yeah, and um, collective efforts towards these things. Yeah, but thank you, Christine. Okay. Um, yes, so, I mean, this also really highlights, I think, the you know the way we write histories of particular moments in time in histories that are actually not finished uh so in a way the the ending point will continue to change uh we have uh micah is next so i gotta unmute you micah let's see there hi um, I have a I have a bunch of questions that have come up as I've been listening, but I think I'll just spring on this latest discussion because I, it, it really got me thinking. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the relationship between 
wetlands and fire. And then I was also wondering if you could um, sort of building on Christine's question, I'm wondering about what is the baggage that we have around wetlands and our ideas around wetlands that we carry with us into the present that perhaps impedes policy or impacts policy? Thanks, Micah. Um, they're really good questions. Um, and the relationship between wetlands and fire is really interesting. So um, I guess uh, my research on this is nowhere near as extensive, I would say, as other people's, including Christine has um, done this amazing work on gender and fire. Um, and, and other people have done great work on wetlands and fire. From my experience and my first chapter on weaving engages with fire is really important um, to the lives of, of Aboriginal women um, undertaking cultural burns um, and weaving with the wetland sedges whose growth is affected by the fire. So the fire, the fire shapes not just um, where plants grow, but how they grow. And the sedges that grow after a fire are much stronger um, and create a different weave. Um, and uh, yeah, I gauge it with, um, for that chapter in particular, um, three different women, in three different Aboriginal women in, uh, in three different wetland areas. Um, yeah, there is quite a strong relationship uh, in, around wetlands and fire. Each of those relationships really different, of course, depending on the wetland um, and also the diversity of Aboriginal cultures in Australia. Um, so my work on wetlands and fire has really centred on Aboriginal women's engagement with cultural burning um, in wetlands, which is a long history. So one of the wetlands engage with um, is the Macquarie Marshes uh, and there's a really long history of burning the marshes um, doing this cool burn which means that the roots aren't of the um, reeds and sedges and so on aren't damaged um, so it doesn't sort of uh, eliminate <laughs> um, sedges and reeds it, it just shapes um, a whole lot of things including the way the sedges and rushes and so on grow um, so to your second question on baggage, there's so much baggage and it continues to shape how um, I think wetlands are understood at all different scales. Um, internationally, of course, there's a lot of wetlands conservation, but there's a lot of concern over mosquito-borne diseases and so on as well. Um, and wetlands are still seen as um, disease places and in lots of cases, they are disease places as well. Um, a part of what I look at in the book is um, this relationship between disease and wetlands, which is very strong and powerful and changes over time, you know, understandings of miasmas and then mosquitoes um, as carriers of disease. Uh, so one of the things that comes out is that the way we interact with wetlands and treat wetlands shapes their disease potential as well. Um, so in particular, I look at a wetland in Toowoomba that became a, a place for sewage and the mosquitoes um, bred up and became, it became more and more a disease place as well. So I think there's some reinforcement happening there as well. The more um, we turn our back on wetlands, <laughs> the more difficult they become, I would say. Maybe that's a bit controversial. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of baggage around wetlands as um, like very deep cultural histories in in European traditions as well as wetlands as um, as close to the underworld and all of that sort of stuff too, which I still think um, you know has some resonance and legacies of that wetlands as bad places. Yeah, um, Rod Giblet's done a lot of work on from cultural studies perspective on wetlands as um, sort of bad places, dark places. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of baggage, so I think there's all these con contested understandings battling in different places, in different ways. Um, yeah. So I guess my book's trying to sh show one way that we can think about wetlands that um, tries to navigate some of these contestations. Thank you. So we have a couple of questions in the chat. So um, we can start with Vincent's first, uh, based on his research on history of invasive species. So he wants to know more about the ducks. Um, if you could elaborate on the context of how the ducks that you have looked at then become imagined as a problematic pest. I mean, because this, this question of what's a pest or not is something that is self-evident, so it's it's a constructed idea. So he wants to know, you know, in what context and how did various human actors and non-human actors, like the duck, uh, play a role in constructing this idea of the duck as a pest? Mm, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, it's really interesting, and it's so linked to the history of um, rice farming. So I'm looking at ducks as pests in rice farms, um, very specific. Um, and it's really linked to this history of farming in Australia. So these irrigation areas were set up as um, places where immigrants could come and take up a farming plot and start farming. Not all of them had farming backgrounds. In fact, most of them didn't. Um, and through this research, um, well, I'll go back a little bit. So the ducks would come into these rice farms. Rice was just one of the first things they grow grew that they thought could be successful. They tried a bunch of stuff and it all failed. The government was involved in trying to work out what would, what would work in these farming areas after they'd built all the infrastructure, which is a whole other interesting story. Um, and uh, through the experiments, partly of the of Isabari Takasuka, um, these, this rice growing takes off. Um, and the rice become attracted to the paddies, particularly areas where rice hadn't germinated very well. And so there were these um, areas of open water and then with these uh, semi-aquatic grasses growing around the rice and the ducks were attracted to these and would flatten um, down the growing rice uh, when the bays were flooded. Um, apparently they were also eating the fresh sown seed, but there's some debate about this. Um, yeah, so there is this idea that, and later on, um, so the farmers that have been farming for a while don't get the same duck problem. And then a new irrigation area is set up and they with new farmers there with not very much farming experience and the ducks become an issue there. So there is some sense that the farming practices and the bad farming practices perhaps of inexperienced farmers um, were contributing to the duck's presence. Um, and this was borne out a little bit. I did some interviews with rice farmers, contemporary rice farmers, who multi-generational, and I was talking to them about this history, and that's what they understood had sort of happened as well. Um, but ducks are still an issue there. It's not as though it all went away. Um, and I think uh, during um, both drought periods and wet periods, they're an issue there. 
because during drought periods, they're just looking for water. Although in the latest drought period, there was no rice growing because there just wasn't enough water either. But um, the ducks come there in, in lesser drought periods where rice is being grown, but also when there's big floods the, um, and there's lots of water everywhere in the landscape, it's just more water as well. So, um, yeah, the ducks do become framed as pests, but it's not straightforward. It's a contested role for them. Um, and there's lots of different interests that they bring together as well. So one of the guys, um, a scientist who actually all the study, all the scientists who work on these ducks as pests, which um, the government funds because they're interested in investing in agriculture, say that the ducks aren't doing that much damage. And so there's also this issue of um, how much is too much damage and for who. So for the farmers, it's a lot of damage. For scientists, it's not much damage. And then in the 40s, I think it's the 40s, late 30s, 40s, um, a scientist comes and works on this and um, he does the last study and he just says, look, it's just not an issue. And he actually changes his career from working on um, working on pest animals, which was um, most of the applied research happening there. And in his part-time, he was doing life histories of birds um, and so on. Uh, and he, um, he ends up becoming really involved in wildlife management, particularly after the war. He goes off um, to World War II uh, and he comes back. He can't be involved in anything about killing anymore. He said, I'm sick of this needless killing. He really advocates for wildlife protection and he's really involved in the nomination of Australia's first Ramsar site, which is actually the world's first Ramsar site, Coburg Peninsula. So it's really interesting, like the ducks in all of this are really interesting and the interactions between the ducks and the people. And it's not ducks and people, it's like these particular ducks in this place doing this thing. And there's different species of ducks involved here as well. Um, some some get blamed, um, or, or one of the scientists say that the that ducks in general are being blamed unfairly. Other birds are doing lots of issue, lots of eating of rice growing, like the crows and all this sort of stuff. Um, and the, it's a, so the other factor here is the hunting interest in ducks. So having ducks complete declared um, or having an open season on ducks in this area meant that hunters from Victoria could come and shoot the ducks and the rice growers would benefit from that as well. So blaming the ducks had a sort of um, another benefit as well. There's a lot, like the ducks bring together these really interesting interests because they've got these long hysterical legacies as game species and so on, um, which come into play with this role as pests. Sorry, that, that went on a bit. <laughs> oh, ducks, many of us interested in ducks, it sounds like. So that's all good. Uh, They're pretty interesting. Yes. So we have uh, another question from Mary, who um, I think really relates to then the, the larger applicability of modern human histories. I mean, this, this approach to use and that you also advocate for and having other publications. Uh, when it comes to, I mean, I guess, environmental change and the crisis in local communities, is your approach or modern human history is something that can empower local communities that can contribute to I mean transformations creating positive change I mean and particularly I would say in cases where those populations are also themselves contributing to the problem in, in various ways so it has to do in a way with the way people live 
Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, yeah, I do think more than human histories can have something to offer at a community level. I think it's there's a range of different threads, I think, for answering this. Um, one is that it creates openings to tell different histories. And I think some people are for that and some people are not. So it's not a, a political um, approach. Um, but I think mostly people are interested in their places and they're interested in finding out new ways of thinking about their places and engage with that in various ways, whether they agree um, with the approach you're taking or not. Um, but I do think it holds, um, it holds benefit. I think it holds open a space um, for multiple voices. Uh, and it's not just about multiple non-human voices, it's about multiple human voices. Um, yeah, so I think there is a potential. I think we need these diversity of voices in the current climate crisis and we need new ways of thinking and new ways of, of um, imagining our futures, sort of to go to something Christine raised as well. Uh, and the past is a strong part of that. Um, how you see yourself in a bigger story, um, you know, is really important for people's identity and it can shift their identity having a different... Um, story and uh yeah um yeah i think history is really important in imagining our futures because it yeah it helps us situate ourselves um and it shapes our relationships uh with the world around us well i had a a, a final question which has to do i guess with where this book is situated um in a disciplinary or an undisciplinary fashion and yourself. Um, so you've been in a geography um, kind of group, geography department. So I was wondering in that situation, if you think you've written this book differently than you would have if you had been in a history group. Um, and, and so how that, how, how your kind of institutional or, or yeah, even broader disciplinary focus in environmental humanities changes the way you've written this particular book. Yeah, um, yeah, I, th I think the short answer is yes, definitely. Um, I've ever since I've been doing my PhD, I've had a um, engagement with interdisciplinary conversations in the environmental humanities. Um, I was I did my PhD based in a history um, department. I have a PhD in history. Um, and was always engaged in interdisciplinary conversations, including with geography. And I think environmental history has a strong, um, a strong uh, conversation with geography um, that uh, we're often interested in similar sorts of things. So I do think there is this, um, this they uh, have a lot to say to each other, I suppose, and they have um, been in conversation um, for a long time. Um, I do think I, I have learned a lot working with geographers. Partly it's to think about what the value of history is. Um, and part of it is to think about what history can learn from other fields as well. So I think, um, yeah, that sort of dialogue has been really important. Yeah, I've learned a lot from geographers for sure. Um, and I think I've brought that to this book, um, which is situated explicitly 
in dialogue with environmental history and the broader environmental humanities, um, for which geography has been really central, more than human geography, um, human geography and cultural geography, of course. And environmental history has been involved in that conversation too. I think one of the things I've really learned from geographers is um, uh, that discussing theory and approaches explicitly and methodology is really valuable. And I think environmental historians, I mean, not to say we're all the same, we all do this to more or lesser extents, but I think that's something for me, at least as an environmental historian. I think environmental historians generally might um, learn from geographers. Um, but at the same time, I think environmental historians have a lot to, to offer. I still see myself as a historian and I think we bring a real value um, not just as a discipline, but to interdisciplinary conversations as well. I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that's a very uh, good way to end this because our time is up. So uh, thank you so much then to Emily O'Gorman for talking about her book, Wetlands in a Dry Land, Modern Human Histories of Australia's Murray-Darling Basin. That's out now with University of Washington Press. So, and also thank you to everyone for coming to this first book talk of the semester. There, there it is. is. So, Putting a plug. Buy my book. <laughs>